From Alaska Team Media Institute, I'm Madison Knutson. This is Zoom Room. A youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. Dante Miedema is the author of the young adult fiction novels, The Truth Project and Message Not Found. A former board member for the Alaska Writers Guild, she has presented at the Alaska Writers Conference and sat as the writer in residence at Alaska Pacific University. Her first book, The Truth Project, is about 17-year-old Cordelia, who discovers a hidden family secret while working on a genealogy project for school. In her second book, Message Not Found, high schooler Bailey loses her best friend unexpectedly. To work through her grief, she creates a chatbot only to discover things she had never even known about her best friend. At Me producer Edison Wallace Moyer sat down with Miedema to take a deep dive on her writing process, the themes she explores in her books, and crafting stories for teens and young adults. They spoke on June 30th, 2022. When did you start writing? Oh gosh, uh, I feel like I've always been a storyteller. My mom will tell you I lied a lot as a kid and that's not untrue, it's not a lie. Um, but I started writing like seriously, like I knew I wanted to be a writer. When I took a class in college, I took like a creative nonfiction class and something about workshopping a piece made me like, it was like a compulsion, like I had to do it again. Just being able to share something personal or share something that meant something to me and see other people react in real time. There was just something very intoxicating about that. And after that, I was like, no, this is what I wanna do. I wanna be a writer. So do you remember the first story you wrote? Oh, like ever? Um, there was a, like a writing contest or like some sort of like writing fair thing at my school when I was a kid in third grade. And I wrote a story about a moose that spent a lot of time in our yard. It was called the moose that came to breakfast. Um, my mom still has it somewhere, but uh, that's the first time I remember like writing like a, a tangible book, like a piece. Um, and I mean, I know I wrote stuff in like high school and stuff like that, but not anything where I was like, into it, I guess. I don't know. Uh, like I said, it was the first piece piece that I wrote that like made me want to be a writer was about um, the creative nonfiction class. I wrote about uh, an experience in our family. Like we were supposed to pick something that happened in our family and share about the story as though we were there, like a, like a piece of our family history and then write about it as though it were like a fiction piece. And I chose to write my, um, my father's father uh, was a veteran and he died by suicide and it was very awful. Um, but he, it's this thing, this moment that haunted our family for generations, like generational trauma. Uh, and so that's what I wrote about. Um, and so that's kind of the piece that made me want to be a writer. And it stemmed from an obituary that I found of my grandpa. And it said that he died of a brief illness. 
which I knew that PTSD wasn't brief. It was very long. Um, I just thought that was an interesting way to phrase it. When was the moment when you were like, I'm going to get published? I'm going to write a book and it's going to be published. As in like, like logistically when that happened or when I knew I wanted it to be my thing, like I wanted that to happen. Will you say that in college, that was when you decide you wanted it to happen? Right. Was there a break or? Oh yeah. So I have four kids. And so in between that college class and getting published, I was having babies and moving and doing life. Um, but there was, I went to a conference in I think 2012, 2011 or 2012. And it was a writer's conference and I was like, jazz. I was like, okay, this is gonna be so cool. I'm gonna go. I have this idea for a story. I want, you know, motivation. I wanna find like tools like to help me write this book. Um, and I get there. And by the end of the conference, I was like, I'm never writing a book. I will never write a book. <laughs> this is so scary. How am I ever gonna know how to add characterization and plot and pacing and, you know, make sure the sentence structure works and, 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 and like, that is so much to memorize on a first page, right? How am I ever gonna know how to do that? And for me, it was just very overwhelming and very scary. And I was like, yeah, I think maybe I should try something else. <laughs> this is a whole lot. Uh, luckily, writing's a compulsion and I had to keep doing it. Um, you know, I think that people who write have something that they need to say or something they need to get out of them. And for me, it obviously didn't go away just because I was scared of sentence structure and plot. But it was a while. It was 2016 is when I was like, okay, this is it. Like that's when I started querying. So it was a few years um, where I was like, okay, I had gone to another conference at that point. It went a lot better the second time. Uh, once I had like revised the book and like figured some stuff out, I felt a little bit more confident. Um, and I went and it was just a very different experience. Um, and then I started querying shortly after that. And of course, way too early, my book was not ready. Uh, and that book has not seen the light of day, but yeah. Can you quickly explain what querying is to anyone who's listening who might not know? So query letter is basically after you've written a manuscript and you are looking to seek representation for your work, you write a letter and it gives a brief introduction to what the story is about and a very small paragraph about who you are. And it's asking literary agents to look at your work and hopefully represent you. And so that is what, uh, if you are looking to get traditionally published, that is typically what people, the avenue that they take is getting an agent. So hopping onto that, I saw you speak at West High School when you came um, and you told the story of getting your first book published. Could you tell us that story? Oh yeah, that was such an experience. I, I mentioned before, like I'd been writing for a long time, about 10 years, it felt like. I feel like that's a right number. And it was something that I wanted and it's something I've been working on on and off for a long time. But the trajectory of what happened once I wrote the Truth Project was so wild. Um, I had been, I had I'd queried one project to death. Um, I took the short story that I wrote and I turned it into a YA novel. 
Um, and I wanted so badly for that to be the book that I wrote that book three different times. I edited the hell out of it. I tried everything I could to make that book the book. Um, and I decided, you know, I'm gonna keep the queries that I have out for that out. But I had started working on something else and I had drafted it and I was in the middle of revising and I got this idea. Um, I had been on, uh, my, my sister and I had been talking about, I had taken an ancestry test and I suggested that she take one and we have kind of a interesting family dynamic. Um, she's my half sister. And she was like, I will not take a DNA test because it will tell me that I'm the product of an affair and I absolutely will not be doing that. And so luckily for us, like it didn't pan out that way. That's not what happened. But it gave me this idea about a girl who did find out that via an online ancestry test. And so I just kind of ran with it. I, I, you know, called my critique partner and I was like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to write this. Um, and they were like, do it. And so I did. And I wrote it in like six weeks. It was crazy fast. It was ridiculous. So that was in July. In August, I started querying, which it was draft like 1.5. I had run it by like one person that wasn't within like my critique group, uh, which is un like, I would never suggest someone do that. I would always suggest someone get more feedback than one person. Um, but I didn't. And I immediately started querying. I just had that gut feeling. And I was so nervous because at the time, those DNA tests were so big and popular. I was so scared that if I didn't get this out there fast, someone else would. And so I was just like speeding right through it. So I start querying. And then come September, I get this crushing, crushing uh, response to one of my queries. And it was, it was a no, it was a pass. And they said, it was very good. I missed my subway stop. I was so intrigued. Um, but no, ultimately, I don't think it needs to be inverse. And so I'm going to have to pass. And I was crushed. I was heartbroken. I was um, the conference chair for the Alaska Writers Guild at the time. And we were in the middle of doing uh, the conference for uh, the Alaska Writers Conference. And Mark Cameron, who is a local author, he lives out, I think, in the Valley or Eagle River. But he came in for it. Um, great guy. He does, he writes some of the uh, Tom Clancy books and he has his own series. He's wonderful and speaks at the conference regularly. He's, I can't speak well enough about him, but he was giving me a pep talk and was like, you got this, you're going to be fine. Um, and then that night uh, I was taking two of the agents back to their hotel and I uh, dropped them off and I happened to pick up my phone to just text my husband and tell him I'm on my way home. And I look at it and I see an email and I open it and it's from my now agent saying, she said that she just finished reading, she loved it. And then told me some pages that she loved and then said, uh, Kodiak Jones is a total Peter Kavinsky. And it was right at like the height of, to all the boys I loved before it was like a film and everyone was talking about Peter K. And it was like the highlight of my, of my whole like conference experience. It was like, oh, <gasps> And I got out of my car, I wasn't even thinking, I just got out of my car and I'm holding my phone, I'm like, ah! and one of the agents comes over, she thought someone had died because of course she did. She comes over and she looks at my phone and she's like, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, like we have to go out for champagne. So we did. Um, and then fast forward, like, you know, when you get an offer of representation, 
you have to contact everyone else who's had your query letter. So all of the agents, and I think there were around 35 that I had queried, I had to contact them and say, okay, uh, so I have an offer of representation. Uh, now you have to read it and let me know if you would like to you know, get in on this. And so after two weeks, I made my decision based on the agents that wanted to sign with me uh, and ended up signing with the original offering agent, Louise. And then we did like a half round of edits, just some light copy edits because my grammar's terrible. Uh, but <laughs> after that, she was like, all right, let's put this on sub. So on sub means basically that the same idea as querying, only it's your agent reaching out to their contacts at different publishing houses and saying, would you be interested in this book? Is this something you would like to read? And then going from there. Um, and it can take a while. I have a friend who was on sub for two years. Like it can take a long time uh, because not only does the editor want to read it and publish it, but they also have to uh, take it to a group of people like marketing, publicity. They have to take it to the higher ups at their company and get them to sign off on it too. It's called going to acquisitions. And so there are a lot of like things that have to happen for a book to get published. Uh, a lot of people that have to sign off on that purchase. And so, you know, it was just kind of going, you know, as it does. And very like right before Thanksgiving, she she found out that a few editors wanted wanted in on it and so we knew we were going to go to auction which because there was more than one editor who wanted it we took it to auction and i think there ended up being six editors at five houses that like got in on it and so it was november 30th which to anyone who lives in alaska november 30th 2018 we know there was a massive earthquake and i had just driven my kids to school and I was driving home and all of a sudden all of the snow fell off the trees I thought something was wrong with my car um I was like what's going on did I blow a tire like I've never blown a tire I don't know what that feels like what's happening and I look in front of me and all the cars are stopped and all the snow is just falling and I was like the apocalypse this is the end like this is when it ends and luckily it didn't um just an earthquake but I wasn't able to know the outcome of the uh, auction until the end of the night when I stole my husband's cousin's phone and called someone or called my agent. And I said, Hey, sorry about that. We had a, we had a, she's like, Oh God, I thought you were dead. Just making sure you're okay. Anyway, we sorted it out, but it was wild to not have any idea what was going on the entire day, which I was expecting to like try to distract myself from the auction and then check in with my agent periodically when like between rounds of the auction, but that's just not how it worked out. Um, so yeah, uh, she called it the book deal that shook Alaska, literally shook Alaska. And yeah, that's how I became published. <laughs> <laughs> that is such an incredible story. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors on how to get an agent and get work published? So there is so many different ways to get published. Like there's self-publishing, there's indie press, there is traditional publishing, there's uh, the big four publishers. There's so many ways to make that happen. Um, and I think that, you know, going through an agent, traditional publishing, that was something that I needed to do for myself. It was something that like made sense to me. Um, it's just the avenue that I chose. But 
my first advice would be to research your like genre, research what you're writing and see what markets do well with that genre. And then don't stop. Like just keep trying to better yourself as a writer. Keep trying to like, okay, for example, that book that I really wanted to make happen. Um, when I think about that book, I don't look at that book as a failure. I look at that book as like, that's how I taught myself how to write. Like it is really, really hard to sit down and write a book. And then it's really hard to edit a book, especially when you don't know what you're doing. Like you have to figure it out along the way. And so if I had just written that book and I had queried that book and it didn't work and I had just said, okay, well, I tried that and it didn't work, I'm done. I wouldn't be published because it wasn't the right book for the market. Um, there's a lot of reasons why books don't get published. But my point being is if you stop, you stop learning, if you stop trying, if you start doing new things, you'll never see where you could end up. So the only way to not eventually get there is if you just stop or give up. So we're at a time where many authors are self-publishing and self-promoting their own work, while others are still going through publishing houses. What do you feel has worked best for you? So obviously I chose traditional publishing. Um, one of the things I always go back to is one, YA does better with traditional publishing, uh, indie, or not indie, but like self-pub. YA, there's not a huge space for it. There's some, but it's not as prolific as what you see in the traditional publishing market. Um, that being said, self-promotion is a huge part of being an author, whether you are indie published, whether you are self-published, whether you are traditionally published with a big four um, publisher, either way, you're gonna still have to do those things, probably not to the same extent. Self-publishing is its whole beast. It is, you have to do a lot more on your own. And as a mom before, I knew that there were things that one, I'm not comfortable figuring out on my own and two, uh, just not something that I felt like I had the energy to dive into. Uh, and I always use the example, like when you self-publish, you have to figure out the cover, you have to figure out the marketing, you have to figure out, um, you know, the dust jacket, you have to figure out all of those things on your own, you know, developmental edits, and then uh, line by line edits, copy edits, all of those are things that you have to pay for on your own. Whereas when you sign a book deal, all of those things are handled. You have a person designing your book cover, like back to front. Uh, someone is helping with all of those things. And that for me was like, oh, that's worth it. But again, like everyone has their own path, but that's the path that I chose. And I'm, I don't regret that path. I'll put it that way. Why do you think self-publishing is less successful for YA fiction? Well, okay, so realistically, like logistically, most teens who are reading um, like fiction, right, don't have the same access to things like a Kindle account or like an e-reader. And that's where typically people are reading those self-pub books. Um, and that's why the target demographic isn't necessarily there. I mean, there are exceptions to the rules, obviously, but I find that most teens want that, want that book in their hand. So what is your relationship with young adult novels? Did you read them when you were a kid? Uh, the ones that we had, uh, 
when I was growing up, we had a lot of um, like I remember like Sweet Valley High, uh, but then like in high school, I think Lori Halt Anderson's first book came out, um, and I remember reading it and being really into it, and I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, like this is so emotional and meaningful. Um, I read a lot of like Christopher Pike, uh, Melinda Metz was I was I read everything like all of what she wrote. She wrote this really great uh, series called Fingerprints. I have it on my shelf, the whole thing, because I loved it. But it was about a, a girl who could read the thoughts of, uh, from a fingerprint. So like, let's say I touch something and then you come back and you feel it and you catch the fingerprint with your finger and you could read what I was thinking when I left the fingerprint. Um, I loved That's that awesome. <laughs> So cool. Um, and there's just things I remember about that series that was like, ah, this is so cool. And so naturally the first thing I tried to write was fanfic from this story. And I mean, not real fanfic in the way that like we do fanfic now, but fanfic in the sense that like I regurgitated almost like plot for plot that, but with fairies, um, (laughs) wasn't good. It was real bad. Uh, and then, you know, Roswell loved loved so much uh but yes I read a lot um I read a lot of adult books though as a teen especially like as a high school I read just more adult um and then as YA kind of blew up right like with Twilight I read Twilight Uh, as an adult loved Twilight um you know loved John Green got really into those books so it just kind of like evolved as YA did. And so did my reading. I like kind of kept with it and I love writing it and I love reading it. So it just kind of worked out that way. Did you get a different perspective of YA as you began writing versus when you were reading? Yes. So like story itself has changed for me. I can't read a story for fun anymore. I can't like watch a movie for fun. I'm always digesting the plot. I'm always thinking about ways I would improve it, which is terrible. It does take all the fun out of it. But my perspective on why it has changed, yes, because I'm an adult now, I look at some of the decisions differently. I try not to think of my characters as teens in the sense that like, I'm like, okay, I'm writing this for teens. So what would a teen want? I try to think of the character as a character. I think that trying to write for, write, I don't want to ever write down to my readers. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I, I appreciate it. Thank my, you. I never want my readers to feel like I'm trying to tell them what to think or what's right or what's wrong. You know, people make mistakes. People do things that are out of character all the time. Being a teen was such a, an experience for me as it is for everyone. But I think one of the things that I always took away is that sometimes adults, we feel, it is hard to remember the feelings that you had as a teenager because as an adult, we feel like we have everything figured out, right? We don't at all. Sometimes you can read something and you know that the adult is trying to tell the teenagers what the right thing to do is, or they're like not 
not trusting their readers to pick up on like nuance. And I don't think that's fair. Um, I trust my readers. Y'all are smart. Uh, you read, you're good. But for me, ultimately, I just want people to be able to read it and feel a connection with a character, whether they're a teen or an adult. Like, it's just a human being. I'm not writing her as a teen. I'm writing her as someone who happens to be a teenager, if that makes sense at all. Um, it does. But it I does. don't think, I don't think of it in terms of like, okay, I'm writing a teen character. So I need to like, make sure the teen behaves like a teenager. Cause that's not fair either. Not every teen behaves the same way. Not every teen has the same, and this is a soapbox I'll get on. Not every teen has the same amount of responsibility, right? Like when I was a teenager, I've said my family dynamic was a little bit different. And so my experience as a teen was way different than some of my friends. They got to be kids a lot longer than I did. And so I try to think of it in terms of that. You're not always writing for the kid who grew up in the cookie cutter home and like the sweet valley high, right? You're also writing for the kid who grew up in a broken home, who grew up, um, in all sorts of different situations. It's why I love Kathleen Glasgow's writing so much. She writes for the teen that came from a scrappy situation and still has like heart, right? Like that's what I love. So kind of on that, in your experience, who reads YA? Everybody. It depends on like, depends on the genre. I think there are a lot of adult readers who read fantasy there's a lot of teens who read fantasy YA like I don't think there's any like one person who picks up YA ideally right teens who do you think reads YA I mean I read YA <laughs> without yeah. a doubt it's an interesting title though because they call it young adult and so your idea is oh this is for college students but teens read them high school middle school students adults yeah. full-on adults 50 year olds read YA it's definitely yeah I think it's I think the beautiful thing about YA is that it's all about like being on the precipice of something great about to happen and like feeling like you can do anything and I think that's the reason why people love reading YA is that we get for a moment to remember what it felt like to feel like I don't have it all figured out and that's okay and I can still grow into who I am Versus like us, adults, boring adults who are like, I have everything figured out. I pay taxes, I pay bills, I have a job and a car and a mortgage. I'm just like, I have it together. That's not fun to read. No one wants to read someone who like figured out their whole life. At least I don't. Who do you write for? I write for people who are flawed. I write for the people who do things and think things other than what they should and struggle with that. People who need to see that being human is more than just doing what they're supposed to. And also, you know, there's nothing more amazing than someone saying like I had this experience and your writing helped me heal so maybe write for people who need 
a little bit of a bow on their wounds, a little band-aid. But try to keep things hopeful. Like these are awful things that are happening, like life-changing events that hurt people. And my hope is that when a reader picks up my book, they never put it down and feel hopeless. That is incredible. So I read that you're very detailed in the plotting of your books. What does it look like? You know, when you're watching a true crime show and the, the police officer has like the whiteboard with all the, you know, string and stuff like that. That's what it looks like. Uh, just trying to like organize something backwards. And a lot of times it's just doing exactly that. It's having these little pieces that I want and trying to find a way to connect them all. Uh, lots of post-it notes. Um, I have a whole, a whole method, a whole eight step method of figuring out how to write a book um, or plot a book. Plotting is really one, I always joke that it's like by necessity. I have to plot fully, like plot everything or I'll never write it because I'll forget what I was gonna put in there in the first place because I have four children and the brain cells don't come easy to me. <laughs> um, but it is a lot of a lot of chaos. As you can see, like everything is messy in here. This is this is my my mess, my messy zone where I put I I had a bunch of post-its out from when I had just plotted something, but not anymore. And I am trying to be more like eco-conscious, conscious. Uh, and I've started using plotter for some stuff. Uh, it's a program that kind of does the same thing. You can use the same kind of color by color method. I like to have that bird's eye view of what the book is gonna have in it. And that helps me kind of process like, okay, if I have you know a character on page five and they're important to the story, I don't wanna like not have them for five chapters before you think about them again. Like I wanna make sure that they're in there throughout the whole book. So yeah, just a lot of chaos. Chaos is good in my opinion. What do you think is the advantage of being a plotter or a pantser? And for those listening who don't know, plotters are writers who plot out their books and pantsers are writers that kind of go with the flow. The name comes from the idea of flying by the seat of their pants. I've heard, so one word that I've heard tossed around is discovery writer to describe a pantser. Um, it's just a little bit more of a flowery, nicer term than pantser. Um, now, I don't think one is better than the other uh, at all. I think that there, I don't, and I don't even think that there's much of a advantage to one over the other. I think they're doing the same thing, but in different forms. Like either way, you're still coming to the story, whether you're plotting it out or whether you're pantsing it, you're still like allowing the story to form. For me personally, the idea of pantsing something seems very, like, like an inefficient use of time. Like if I could just think about it and write down a sentence, I don't have to go back and edit that in. Versus if I had written this out, I would have to go back at the beginning, I'd have to change that one thing. And then the trickle effect, because that one thing is gonna impact the rest of the story. So I have to go back and fix it all. And so that's why I plot. Um, but yeah, I, I do have a theory about the difference between the two. And I think it boils down to the fact that for pantsers, their character arc 
and their characters stayed the exact same. Like from concept to that final draft, those characters are set in stone. Those characters don't move, they're immovable, they're untouchable, that's who they are. But with a plotter, it's the other way around. Their characters are movable, but their plot is like, this is the plot, we'll move the characters to fit into it. And I think that what I've noticed is the biggest difference. Do you think having a concrete plot versus concrete characters is more important or makes a story more solid? I think they both have to be there. Like, I think you need both. Like, one, plot, you have to have a good plot to move the story. But if you don't care about the characters, who cares? Like, what's the point of the story if you don't care about the characters? So it has to be a marriage. It has to be a balance. But I think that like anything else, right, in any medium, in any craft, you have your skills and you have to have the things that like are a little bit harder that you have to work on. So for me, that's character. It's getting to the root of those characters, figuring out what's in their head. Those are things that I have to spend a lot more time on. Whereas plot, I can do that in my sleep. Easy peasy. So we've talked about how you plot your plot, but how do you develop it? How does it become what we read? Lots of editing. So luckily, right, like I have a team of editors that help. I have critique partners that help, you know, poke holes in my plot um, and allow me to fix them. So usually I have, I start out with like a very, very basic plot. Like we're talking like a sentence for like each beat that I would go through. Um, and I use the three act nine block, 27 chapter structure. Uh, my friend who is a doctor of mythology, literally, she's a genius. Uh, she's recently set up something with the heroine's journey versus the hero's journey. And so I've been playing with that. So I start with like this basic bare bones, like skeleton. And then I go through and I do my, you know, bird's eye view. And I look at it a little more in depth and I just kind of add on and add on until it feels layered. Um, usually in the very beginning when I'm first plotting, we're talking like maybe three or four pages worth of notes. And by the end, it's like 17, 18, 19, somewhere in the early 20s sometimes. So it just depends. Um, but ultimately, you know, each step of the way, writing can feel very solitary, but a lot of times I'm talking over plot with my critique partner. I am discussing it very in depth um, until it just feels right, I guess. Can you give us a little bit more background on the three act nine block structure, 27 chapter? Yeah. So Kat O'Keefe is a YouTuber um, who has the three act nine block, 27 chapter structure, and it's based off the hero's journey. And so I want to say there's like a blog somewhere that did it for one of the Hunger Games books, but showed each block what it looks like next to the book which is like 27 chapters exactly like block by block showed exactly what happens and that's just for whatever reason the the outline method that has worked for me I love save the cat but it leaves a lot of like open space for you to interpret on your own like the fun and games is like a huge portion of the book but it's just like oh and now the fun and games I'm like well what do I put in there like what do I do now with the three act nine block 27 chapter structure it helps guide that a little bit more um and it's just kind of how I got started and it's what makes sense for me. 
I know as a reader, I see plots that I will read the back of a book and I'll just be like, all right, read that. It's it's just a different, it's different characters in a different world. Are there any plots that you stay away from or do you ever have an idea and you're like, nope, can't write that. It's already been done. People aren't going to be interested. Huh. So I think that story itself is this universal thing, right? Like we're trained to ingest story. Um, there's a great book by Lisa Cron called Wired for Story. And it's all about how like we just understand it. We look for patterns. We as human beings look for stories in things. Um, one of the things like we talk about over and over again is how these stories kind of do repeat themselves, right? But it's all about taking something that is a universal truth or a universal experience and updating it, right? So for the Truth Project, for example, this idea of where am I from, uh, who am I based on, you know, uh, is the family that I'm born into what's more important or is it my blood that's more important? Like, which or other way around is like nature versus nurture. That's not a new idea, right? But what is new, what is relevant right now is the fact that like DNA tests are a thing. And I always try to think about it in this, in this like way of what is happening in this story that is relevant to my readers? Like, what am I exploring or what do I want to explore that is relevant to today? And how does that impact today's reader? And so, yes, I think there are stories that I am not the person to tell. Um, I think that there are stories that are better suited for someone else to explore, but if I am going to sit down and spend a lot of time with a story, it has to be something that not only like really like I need to explore something about the theme, but it has to be something that like I'm like really invested in. Do you develop your characters or do you allow them to develop on their own based on the plot you've come up with? No, I'm in charge always, always, always. Um, so I use the Enneagram to shape my characters and inform their decisions. And it's all about, you know, your, your emotional wound, your childhood wound that never got fixed or the message you received as a child that hurt and how that impacts the decisions that you make as an adult. And so that's why I use the Enneagram. I feel like it's kind of a cheat sheet. Um, so I always ask myself, like, let's say, for example, with the truth project, I keep using that example, but I knew what it was going to be about. I knew the plot. And I said, which Enneagram type would be most devastated to find out they were the product of an affair? And I came to the four because the four, they're like feeling that they have always had, like the lost childhood, like the wound that they had is that they felt like they didn't belong. And so that's why I made her a four and fours are very artistic and very poetic. And um, that's why Cordelia became a poet. That is why it ended up written in verse. Because I thought, how cool would it be to have her point of view in verse to really just dive into those like deep emotions that the character feels. Could you tell me about a time when you were surprised at a decision made by one of your characters or they displayed a characteristic you didn't know they had? Uh, Cordelia in The Truth Project is doing a project with Kodiak Jones and they're sitting there and they're in the middle of like working on a poem I think 
and she goes to his house and she totally makes a move, which is not what Cordelia would do. Uh, but she did. And I was like, well, this is interesting. Cordelia, your mother only knew. Um, yeah, that one. Uh, definitely that one. I was surprised reading that part. I was like, this doesn't seem like something she would do. Nope, that was uh, that was uh, all her move. I was also surprised. It's like, all right, we're just going to keep that in there and see what happens. And it works out. Like, it plays out just fine. Um, yeah, it was great. Good honor. We'll be right back. Alaska Team Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateammedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateammedia.org. Now back to our interview with Dante Miedema. So you decided to write the Truth Project in poetry because that's how you felt your main character, Cordelia, would express herself. Do you believe books to be the self-expression of the author or the main character? Both. So especially when you are writing in first person, it is like, I don't, I, like, it, it is not that I've become the character, I want to be clear, but there has to be a piece of you in it, right? And oftentimes, as writers, we find pieces of ourselves in there that we didn't even mean to put in. It is just something, especially, like, writing something that is deep or heavy or explores a theme like family or grief, you really do put so much of yourself into it, but it is from the lens of a character. So for example, in Message Not Found, right? I put a lot of myself, my own grief into that. Um, my dad was on a ventilator during my last like revision of that book. And so much of my grief was just right inside of it. Uh, and so when I read it back now, it feels almost like a diary of grief. But that being said, there are things and actions and things that Cordelia says that don't align with how I felt. I was not stealing anyone's phone. I certainly didn't make a chatbot of my dad after he died. Uh, none of that happened. But there is small pieces of, like it's impossible to write something that like that without having a piece of you in it. Um, and ultimately, as a storyteller, right? You're telling a story because you have something to say, an idea you want to explore or a theme you want to explore. So both, I guess, is my answer again, you know? You say that that message not found is a lot of you exploring your grief. Do you believe both of your books to be your self-expression as well as your characters? And how, how much of you is in that, I suppose? 
That's a really good question. So it's, I feel like it's just like a marriage of the two. Obviously these characters come from my head. Like there's something about me in some way that feels like, I think the themes more overall would be me, like the ideas that are expressed in a way. Sometimes it's a choice of like, I need the character to kind of fit, like in order to explore this theme fully, I need to have another character that has this experience to juxtapose something that's happening with the main character, you know? Or I need the character to feel this way about something because of this. But oftentimes there is just the, the overall themes that are explored are something that I want to explore. I'm a big proponent of there is no villain in these stories. Like if you think about it, no spoilers, but even like the bad people in these books are doing bad things because they're hurting, right? And that's something that I have always like, I love a villain that is wounded. I love a villain that is vulnerable, right? Um, and in these stories, I think one of the things I explore a lot is this idea of human beings making mistakes, as parents making mistakes. With the Truth Project, it was very much me exploring this idea of my family not being perfect. I grew up um, with some chaos. My parents did the best they could, but they were not in a situation where they could do as much as some of my friends, you know, or, or were capable enough, you know, but ultimately at the end of the day, like everything's fine. And that wasn't because they didn't love me. It wasn't because they didn't care. They had other stuff going on. And as a result, things happened, right? Um, that doesn't make them bad people. They made some bad choices, but they're not bad people. And that's something I really wanted to explore in the truth project was this idea that like, we all as human beings make mistakes, every one of us, there's not one person I know that's not like, ooh, there's something I wish I would have done differently. And I don't know, I mean, I'm gonna go back to the themes of the story are something that I need to explore for myself usually. And that's the pieces of me that I leave inside the book. And the characters themselves are a little bit more of like a choice, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you talk about, obviously, I've mentioned this in previous questions, how the Truth Project is about grief. Not the Truth Project, That's sorry. Message yeah. not found. Um, is about grief that you needed to explore. Why do you think that you and authors in general need to explore these themes? Because like Hunger Games, why do we need to explore the theme of you throw 24 teenagers in a ring and watch them kill each other? So I can't speak for Suzanne Collins. Uh, I don't know her, but I think that some books are like that, that the author is needing to explore theme. Some people are asking a question. Some people are just trying to write something fun. I'm working on a like secret side project, but it's just stupid and fun. Uh, I think that for me and my writing and historically what I have kind of always done 
is unpack something I'm feeling. I don't, again, I can't speak for Suzanne Collins, but there is this human condition, right? We're all humans and humans do ugly things to each other. Um, desperation makes us do ugly things. I think that one of the things I've noticed in the last few years is that people are scared. And when you're afraid of losing something, you react, you act out, you act in a way to preserve the thing you're afraid of losing. And I think that that's one of the things that the Hunger Game does such an incredible job of exploring is human condition and what we are at stake of losing. I wanna say that's my critique partner, if she listens to this, is gonna like stab me. Uh, but it's something related to mythology. There's like an influence of mythology in that as well in the Hunger Games. Um, but those, again, myth, that's something that we regurgitate over and over again. We explore those ideas every, every time. Like we're all looking to those um, like stories and we think about them and how they are relevant today. And that's why we have the hero's journey. It's one story we're trying to explore. Do you ever have to stop yourself from putting too much of yourself into a story or a character? There's sometimes I wish I had. Um, in the Truth Project, uh, Sana, a lot of people that know me personally are like, that's you. That's you. You're ridiculous. Um, which is fair that's valid. Uh, Sana is also a seven on the Enneagram, which is what I am. But so there are times when like, I think that people who know me really well can read my books and pick up like things that I say, or pieces of myself that I put in there. My husband told me once, um, before he even read my book, he's like, there's no way you didn't put like, that's who you are. Like you emote, like I'm an emotional person. I think about how other people feel. And I am always talking about like the inside and how it feels and talking about those things. And so he's like, it's impossible for you not to bleed into that, um, some of it. With Message Not Found, because it was such a hard time for me um, and reading it back does feel so, just almost like a vulnerability hangover. I just, it's like, I put so much of myself in that, it's hard to read back just some of the, the way the grief kind of layers out, uh, which is always a wonderful compliment when people say it's a great portrayal of grief. I'm like, yes, also because, yeah, that's what I was doing at the moment. Um, and so sometimes I'm like, did I put too much of like my personal like feeling into that? I don't know, I don't know. Going back to the self-expression, do you ever think that you, are you exploring the themes of your adult life or the themes that your younger self might've needed as well? Both. Like, I feel like that's still the same person. I feel like those are congruent lines sometimes. Like the themes that appear now for me are still the themes that like came up for me as a kid. So like I think about, and like, if I cry, I'm sorry, but in losing my dad, you know, my parents were divorced. And for me, like saying goodbye to my dad was this thing I had to do a lot. And it was always heartbreaking every time I had to do it. Now as an adult, grieving the loss of my father 
that same feeling just it's not any different than it felt when I was a teen a lot of times I think that teens I think that kids right look at their parents and they don't see them as people um and that's not a bad thing I'm not saying that in like a negative way I think that for me at least I didn't really see them as people who struggled you know, with their emotions. I didn't see them as vulnerable. I didn't see them as people who are working on things for themselves. I just saw them as, oh, they're my parents. They're in charge. They make the rules, right? And I had all these feelings that seemed to come out of nowhere. And so I don't feel like those things ever, those challenges never really change. So when I'm exploring a theme like that, it is something that I am exploring overall, right? in some way like those things whether it's something I've addressed and dealt with and handled and I'm okay or if it's something I'm like deeply upset about those those things are still there to an extent sorry that part you said about um because your parents were divorced you had to say goodbye a lot that hit me really hard as as a child of divorced parents I've never heard that Uh, a lot of people when you say that you're from a, a broken home they're just like, oh, I'm sorry. But it's never that you have to say goodbye so much. Goodbye is such a hard word. It's such a hard word when you have to do it so often. And at some point, there's that last goodbye. It's just hard. Whether you're a teenager or whether you're an adult, it's hard. Goodbyes are hard. You made me cry. (laughs) In French, goodbye, au revoir, but it translates to until I see you again. I've always thought that was beautiful and lovely. Beautiful. I like aloha, hello and goodbye. You get to say both every time. Was there a moment when you first realized you'd found your voice as an author? a very hard question I feel like I'm still finding books as an author I think that I am more comfortable sitting down and writing like and just saying like oh I'm working on this thing uh, and sometimes it takes a little bit more time to find like the voice of a character but ultimately like when I think about my voice as a writer I think more about style than I think about um voice I guess uh to me voice means something else but style wise I feel like I know what works for me and what like makes me excited uh if I'm not writing something that I'm or if I'm not writing something that I'm excited to write why would a reader care um I really enjoy playing with structure and I think that for me will always be something I play with in my work always and so no I can't I feel like the project and writing in verse really gave me permission to play with structure. And that was just like, heyday, let's go, let's do it. I'm just going to go all in. And it worked out. So in Message Not Found, the main character has what is often perceived as non-traditional parents. Could you tell me about that and what made you choose that? So in Message Not Found, Bailey's parents are both women. Um, and I, I remember reading a review once where someone was like aghast that 
they, were, they thought that the fact that the character had two moms was a distraction from the story, especially because one of the moms was at one point straight. So somehow she just magically became gay. And that was very distracting for the, the reader. Um, but it is a reminder that not everyone sees the world the same way. And things that are normal are just life for others. Um, I don't think there needs to ever be like a reason to feature, like being queer isn't a plot point. It's just there are gay people in the world and in my world, um, and I write to express the world I live in. Clearly that woman doesn't know that sometimes there are people in that world, in this world that need to see themselves. That's what stories and media are all about. Yeah. And that's, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, right? The call for diversity in literature is exactly that. Like every kid deserves to pick a book and see a piece of themselves on the page, see themselves on the cover, right? To be able to identify with whatever and get excited. So your books include, just like we were talking about, a lot of portrayals of what a modern family looks like. Do you think your personal experiences helped shape that? I would say, yeah. I think one of the things that I, one of the you know gifts, we, we joke, my sisters and I, that the legacy my dad left behind was love because he just picked people up and he was like, well, we're family now. So you're adopted and you're adopted and now we're married. So uh, it's, I think it lends itself to the idea of found family and the idea that like blood doesn't make you family necessarily, that, that we can give our love to lots of people and we can be supportive and caring to lots and lots of people. Um, one of the things that I always, you know, one of the greatest gifts my dad gave me was that, that lesson of being able to take in and to give to lots and lots of people and not keep it as this like, this is our family and we only love our family and everyone else can go away. That's not how we've ever been. You know, growing up, we took in lots of stray people and animals. And um, I think that's part of it. That is part of why that is such a theme in my work. Okay, growing up, for example, I'm gonna, my poor mom, if she ever listens to this, growing up, we, again, had a very unique, living situation. At one point, my mom we was living upstairs and my dad was living downstairs with his wife and I was kind of in between. And so not normal, especially in like the early nineties, lots of neighbors were like, what's going on? What's, what's going on over at that house? That's not normal. But when you're a kid in that situation, you don't know that's not normal. That's just how I grew up. Right. Yeah. So I remember at a certain point, like making a joke or something with a friend and realizing, oh, oh, that's not normal. <laughs> okay. Okay. So like not everyone had that kind of situation. Got it. Okay. It was weird. So yeah, I think that my experiences definitely have made me someone who looks at family differently and is more accepting of different types of like what family means. Like that's such a objective term. It's whatever you need it to mean at the time. 
So both of your books are about high school seniors. Why did you decide to write about high school seniors? Well, with the Truth Project, it was kind of out of necessity because she had to take a blood, like the DNA test without parental like permission. Uh, and with Message Not Found, I just needed it. I, I felt like it needed to be an older teen. Um, I think originally they were juniors, but then it just so happened to work out that they ended up being seniors. Both of your books are set in the fictional town of Tundra Cove. Why did you choose to place both characters in the same setting? Um, well, because I knew that no matter where I set it in Alaska, some reader would come and say, that street isn't there, or that's not an accurate portrayal of Homer. So I combined a couple of cities in my head and stuck them together. So yeah, that's why. And then when I was writing Message Not Found, it was like a placeholder at first because I had done it already in the Truth Project. So I just kept it there. Out of curiosity, what towns did you combine in your head for Tundra Cove? Uh, Homer and Girdwood. Definitely. I can tell. I see the Girdwood parts of it a lot. Yeah. I feel like it was just something that had like, those are places that I understand and I love and I just wanted to like mash them together. So I did, it worked out. So do you like crossover storytelling or well, you said you used it as a placeholder. Did you just like it and wanted to revisit it? I feel like at this point I've written two books in Tundra Cove and it feels almost real like I have to remind myself it's not a real place uh because I've spent so much time there in my head so yeah I like crossover stories a lot um just in general I like the idea of a fictional place that you can kind of go to um I don't know if my next book will be set there I'm not sure yet I'll have to figure that out now that you've written these two books in these specific styles, poetry with the truth project and narrative with message not found, both of them include text messages, DMs, and other methods. Do you feel like you have to continue to tell stories in innovative ways? I really want to. Like that's my that's what makes me excited. So yes, I, I don't feel like I have to, I feel like I want to. I love the idea of, you know, picking up a book and it feeling a little bit naughty, like you're reading someone's text. Um, very voyeuristic. I find that fascinating and I find it interesting. And um, if it's fun and interesting to write, my hope is that people find it fun and interesting to read. So yes, I hope I get to keep doing that. Do you feel in this age when so much is exchanged online that this is the new way of telling modern stories? Um, no, not necessarily. I think that like technology has to be accounted for if you're writing contemporary fiction, if you're writing fiction set right now, it needs to be acknowledged at least. Uh, but I don't think that readers are asking for just books that are written in unique structures. I think that readers, plenty of readers, still want those big, thick books uh, that are full of prose. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who are reluctant to read because it's intimidating, especially in a society where we get our information in 30 seconds, you know, clips from 
TikTok, it's hard to imagine focusing on a whole story, but I think that there's room for both, like innovative, unique structures and traditional prose. In terms of thinking of things that need to be acknowledged, like technology, in Message Not Found, you acknowledge the pandemic as something that had happened but was now over when obviously we're still not at a point where it's totally over. Uh, why did you choose that? And would it have been too difficult to write a book in the setting of the full-on pandemic? That was a choice I made because one, I think that it needs to be acknowledged. I think that something like that can't happen and us just ignore it, especially because in Message Not Found, there are dates listed like you know how old these kids are you know you know what years they were doing what and I had to acknowledge the pandemic pretending it didn't happen what didn't feel right you know um pretending that you know those months of you know isolation and social distance and um the the concept of you know digital learning like pretending that didn't happen was it just would have been silly um, also, the pandemic greatly affected me, um, is greatly affecting me, is greatly affecting all of us. I think that we need more books that acknowledge it. Uh, I think we need books that kind of tackle some of the, the loss that our country has felt as a result, but I'm not sure that publishing is ready for it. Um, I'm not sure about readers. I don't know. I think it depends, but I, I think that there are a lot of teens and young adults, kids who have lost people to COVID that would benefit from being able to unpack it that way. You're right. It definitely needs to be acknowledged, but it's, it's so fresh that you're right. Maybe readers aren't ready for it or publishers aren't re ready for it. Like the thought of reading something about the pandemic is terrifying. Yeah, it's, we're all still in it, but also like you know, I think about it in terms of like the kids that really did suffer like great loss, like what it would mean to feel connected to a character who also suffered that great loss and have that as a way to unpack how you feel. Um, yeah. And feel like those, that has to happen at some point. I definitely, I believe that it will at some point. We have a way of always getting around to the things that affect us. Yeah. What stories are important for you to tell? Uh, I think it's important for me to tell stories that have heart, stories that examine something about humanity that I either struggle with or struggled with or need to explore. Both those books came to me in beautiful ways. And I think I'd like to continue that. Those are the stories I find that I want to tell. What stories do you think need to be told? Ooh, uh, I know you don't have an answer to that. I mean, I feel like there's room for every story, right? Like whether it's there to make you laugh or there to make you cry or there to make you, you know, get angry and fired up and, and call to action. Um, I think that right now in publishing, like the landscape of publishing, I think that the stories that have to hold priority are stories that haven't had a chance to be published yet. We need diverse books. It's a movement of, we need to have more diversity in our literature. We need to have 
people there telling stories that haven't been told or that has, has have historically been told through a white lens. Uh, and I think those are, you know, when you look at the, like, the grand scheme of history, most publishing, most books have come from white men. And I think it's really important to highlight, acknowledge, and publish things that are not. So how do you, as a white straight woman, promote the stories and the ideas and the diversity that need to be told while still telling so your stories and exploring the themes that you need to? So one, I like I can never for myself write a story with the main character or character that is like, you know, first person point of view about the experience of being queer or um, a BIPOC person. And that is because I think those stories need to be told by people who know what that's like, because historically those stories have been taken, right? I am a huge advocate of supporting authors and diverse books, diverse authors, diverse books. That is huge for me. Um, I think that if you are an author today who is a white person and you are not actively reading books written by people of color, people in the queer community, then you're doing it wrong. Like we need to be lifting those voices up because historically they haven't been allowed to tell their stories. So given that you're an adult and you're writing books for and about young adults who've grown up in a very different time than when you were at the age, how do you write characters and stories that will be authentic to your readers? I think one of the things, like I said before, is that I don't ever look at it as like, this is a young adult, you know, this is a teenager. I must write teenager voices or I must write teenager things. Uh, I think of it as a human being who has their own layers and consistency. Um, I think that's part of it. I think also acknowledging that you are growing up in a very different time than I did uh, and experiencing things in a different way is also part of it. Looking through that lens and trying to imagine how I might have felt. I always say like, I'm so grateful that every dumb thing I said, and there were so many, I was so dumb because I didn't care about anything as much as teens do now. You guys are gonna take over the world, but I didn't care about that stuff. It didn't even occur to me to care. Uh, I'm glad that stuff that I said and did as a teen is not on the internet forever. But also I think that you guys understand the impact in a way that we would not have. Like the early days of Facebook and like we didn't understand like MySpace we didn't understand what the impact would look like. How could you, right? How could you know what it would do? How could you know? It's like, so you can bring it back to the Truth Project. You know, how could these women who had affairs or had an illegitimate child know that someday there would be DNA tests that people just swabbed to see if they knew any of their relatives, to see if they were, you know, as Greek as their dad says they are, and then find out, mm, dad's not my dad. Like those things, 
never were expected. Like I always think about like, not even just like the generation of parents before us. I think about like great grandma or grandparents that these things happened with their stories are now after their death coming out and like the impact that that has on families. That is a lot to unpack for anyone, much less someone who can't even like talk to their relative that it occurred through, you know, to never be able to understand the whys of it or what this means or I don't know, like, how could you know? How could they know? They were like, I'm taking this to the grave. He's never going to know. And we're going to be fine. Never could have accounted for this. In writing about this age group, what do you think is important to acknowledge about how the world is changing? I think ultimately that you guys care a whole hell of a lot more than we did. Um, you don't have like the mute button. When, when I think about access to information, you guys have a lot more of it. You can look up anything you want on your phone. You just pick it up, Google, Wikipedia, you find an answer. And as a result, because you have so much more access to information, you guys are a lot more passionate about things that are important to the world than we ever were. Like we just didn't, we, I shouldn't say we didn't. We obviously cared about stuff. We weren't just like all completely boy crazy, but I do think that, okay, let me back up. Like the, the references that we had, right? The films and TV shows that we watched that were the high school experience, you know, never been kissed. Uh, she saw that. The focus was not on changing the world or bettering yourself. It was on Freddie Prince Jr., obviously. Uh, <laughs> and so that was the example of what we were told we were supposed to care about. Those are the things that we were told this is what's important to you because you're a teen. I think teens now, it is different. You are treated in a different way are honestly like doing so many wonderful things and like kicking ass. I think about things like climate change, things like the government that I knew nothing about in high school that teens now are involved in. There are, are babies that are, you know, volunteered at the polls. Like, those are things that never occurred to me to do. Um, and I think that that's just kind of par for the course. You guys have a lot more agency than I think my generation did at the time. Do you have any final advice to impart on any young authors? Are there any insights or messages you want to give them? Just don't give up. That's always the message. Don't give up. And like, put good out into the world, whatever that looks like for you, just put good out into the world and it'll come back. That applies to anyone, like artists, like anything, just put good into the world, whether it's exploring art or what work you're doing. It's so important right now more than ever to lend an ear, put good out into the world and like just spread the love. So now for a Quick fun question. Do you like blue raspberry pop rocks? Absolutely. I should go get some and eat them right now. <laughs> yes. 
but that is something that I stole from my friend. Uh, so she is immortalized in literature forever. Uh, but she is, she adopted that same like pop rocks. You can't have a bad day with pop rocks. And so I put it in the book and it stuck. So pop rocks are my life. And for those who don't know, in Message Not Found, Bailey's best friend, Vanessa, uh, has a mentality that a day can't be wrong if you have blue raspberry pop rocks. Can't have a bad day. Just try it. Like, go get some pop rocks and try to, like, cry. You can't. You can't. It's such a wonderful thing. I love that. I'm glad I stole it from her. Amy, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> all right. Thank you. That's all I've got. Thank you. Thanks for making me cry. That was Ami producer Edison Wallace Moyer speaking with Dante Miedema, author of the YA books Message Not Found and The Truth Project. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman, with additional music from Devin Schreckengost. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including Spirit of Youth and United Way of Anchorage. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash Alaska Team Media. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Team Media Institute, I'm Madison Knudsen. Thanks for listening.